You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. All right, if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you open that up to the book of Genesis? We have plenty of Bibles up here. If you need a Bible in your hands, we will bring that to you. Um, Just put your hand up, and uh, Tim and Imar would love to bring you a Bible so that you can be in God's Word with us. Now, if you don't know where the book of Genesis is, first book of the Bible. It's very easy to find, of course, after a few pages of things in the front. There it is. There's the book of Genesis. It's always exciting to embark on a new book of study in God's Holy Word, and as we begin together to to study the book of Genesis here this morning and for many weeks to come. I got to say that I am, I'm super excited to be diving in here. I've been overjoyed and overwhelmed even opening this beautiful text. There's a lot of responsibility here uh, when you're opening the first book of the Bible, but it is a privilege to crack open this holy ancient text and to behold it for all of its worth, to dig deep and to discover the true beauty and and truth that is to be found there, to discover the answers to all of our greatest questions of existence, of life, questions like who are we, where did we come from, why are we all here, what's all of this for, more importantly, who is God? What does he reveal about himself And what does he want with me and us? And then what went wrong? And then the answer to all of that as well. Friends, as many as we have questions, the book of Genesis has answers. This book is all about our beginnings, our origins, our foundations. And as Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, it is the very first revelation Divine revelation given to us by God, insight into who he is. Friends, this book stands as our bedrock foundation for our understanding about everything. And it must be understood and embraced from its foundational structure that undergirds the rest of God's divine word given in the other 65 books of scripture. If Genesis was to crumble, the rest would crumble. And because it does not crumble, it stands infinitely strong and steady and secure. The rest of God's revelation is secure because of where it stands on our beginnings, on our foundations. And where Genesis is beheld for exactly what it is, God's divine, perfect, inerrant, sufficient, breathed out scripture... It is infinitely profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction, given to us for all of life and godliness. It's on Genesis that the rest of the scriptures stand eternally and strong and powerful and immovable to tell the story, to tell history, to tell his story, God's story, to tell the truth to tell the absolute, objective, divine truth. The truth that does not fail. The truth that convicts and captivates hearts and 
secures souls, the truth that sets you free, and the truth that preaches the gospel. As to what all of this is about, as to what the true meaning of life is, as to our purpose, as to our reason for existence now and forever, for the glory of God himself. And so friends, as we approach this book, we ought to approach it with fear and trembling as God would have us to, because God has spoken. The only God, the only wise, living God has spoken. Thus saith the Lord. And if we truly believe that God has spoken, friends, we come to this carefully, we come to this humbly. We come expectantly to hear from God. We don't come hauling a bunch of our fallen knowledge with us. We don't come with our checklist of worldly wisdom. We don't come with a lowly expectation or speculation or earthly experience. No, we come to this God, this God at the very beginning, and we come to receive what he has for us. We come to accept and apprehend what God has revealed. Friends, we come as Bereans, seeking to understand everything by his word. We come with open hearts and a beholding gaze, seeking to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And friends, as we approach this monumental mammoth of a book, there's going to be a lot of work to be done. Right? We want to rightly handle the word of truth. So that we're workers who need not be ashamed, right? So we're going to have to lean in. And we're going to have to lean in with intellectual humility. We're going to have to come with spirit-fueled receptivity. And we're going to have to study with hermeneutical accuracy. And friends, there's so much to wrap our minds and hearts around in this incredible book as we behold the unsearchable, infinite, deep things of God. So... Over the next year or so, we're going to be studying the foundations of our existence through the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at the creation of the universe, of course, the creation of humanity, God's design for us within his cosmos. We're going to be talking about our communion with him in the garden. We're going to study his design for men and women and marriage, our foundations we're going to study procreation and purpose. We're also going to examine, like I said earlier, what went wrong. The origin of sin, the fall of mankind, the curse and the consequence for that sin. We're also going to study the answer to our sin. We're going to be looking at the gospel according to Genesis. We're going to learn about the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first insight into the gospel of Genesis 3.15. We're going to look how in the midst of the curse, there is the promise of a Christ. There is a promise of a coming serpent head crusher. And how through the first family and through the seed of the woman, a savior was coming. That even though darkness and sin was growing amidst mankind, salvation was going to come through judgment. And God's plan of redemption was unfolding. And we see that as it unfolds through Adam. And through his son Seth. And then we see many generations that, that would run through Noah. And through his son Shem. 
and then many generations after that until it gets to Terah and then to, to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. And then as we close the book of Genesis, we find Joseph in a casket. Friends, this book is not only a chronology of our existence and the foundation of our beginning, it is the foundation and the chronology of the gospel. The gospel from the garden, the gospel through the flood, the gospel through the scattering of nations, the gospel through the covenant promises of God to his people, and we're going to behold so much about our God and his gospel, friends, as you are beholding that book in your hands. This book spans more time than all of the books of the Bible put together. So I pray that our time together is going to be blessed that we will grow and that ultimately we will know our holy and saving God all the more and that we would worship him accordingly as he deserves to be worshipped. And so you're invited to come along on this exploration. As we read the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. As we approach your word today and for the weeks and the months to come in Genesis, we ask for your knowledge. We ask for you to renew our minds. We ask for your wisdom to restore our hearts. We ask for your will to replace our will. And we ask that we would know you and that we would know you all the more. Again, as we come to you in the righteousness of Christ, full of your spirit, we commit as your people to honor you, to glory in you, to worship you as you desire to be worshiped. So as we, work, as we open the book of Genesis, this beginnings, we cast all of our self-perceived wisdom aside, we repent of our lowly thoughts, we set aside our earthly ambitions, and we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of your gospel through the book of Genesis. And it is in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we crack the first page of Scripture, the very first chapter, the very first verse, again, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And friends, it is here that a world of both beauty and darkness finds her true origin. That's where she finds her true foundation, her true reason and purpose. When a person, identifying himself as God, Elohim, says, in the beginning, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created what did he create? Well, the text says, earth and heaven, he created everything. God says from the very beginning of his revelation, it was me. In a world of questions and speculations and wondering and all kinds of far-fetched theories, God's voice pierces through all of the noise and basically says, it is me, God. I did it. I made it. And I made it all. From the very beginning, it was me. 
And friends, this is exactly what God's people needed to hear back then, and it's exactly what you and I need to hear right now. As we look at the context, we look at literary context, we look at historical context, we look at the biblical context, we see that the time stamp of the writing of this book of Genesis comes in around the 1500s BC. The writing of this took place at the time of the great Exodus, the author being Moses. Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. This is confirmed throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and is confirmed by Christ himself, who said in John 5, 46 to 47, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see this connection of Moses and his writing of Genesis and the law and how that connects for us to believe in Jesus Christ. So as Moses was the first to write the Holy Scriptures to God's people, it was God ultimately inspiring him to do so. It was ultimately God who was speaking to his chosen people And in the context of Moses' writing, where are they? They're in the wilderness. They weren't, and these people, just think about where they were. They were just recently ransomed and rescued from Egypt. This is God's people who were needing to understand where they were now going. They needed to know why they were where they were. They needed to know where they came from. And they needed to know who this God was that was amidst them in a world that was full of all kinds of myths and stories and philosophies about who God is or who created the the, the world. They were so full of false understandings. And as Moses was the instrument through which God wrote this book to his people, God's people needed to know their true foundations. They needed to know their true God. They needed to know their true purpose. Friends, this book of Genesis is the prequel to the Exodus written to God's people who were, who were living out the book of Exodus. Genesis traces their history all the way back to the very beginning, starting with God himself. And then again through Adam and then Noah and Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and again right up into the death of Joseph who closes out this book. And we remember that Joseph was the one who brought them into Egypt in order to preserve God's people. And so as these people are living out the Exodus, as they're hoping in their promised future, God shows them their past. He shows them their foundations for which all of it stands. And so friends, when you look at this book, even when you read the word Genesis, Genesis is the Hebrew word Bereshith, which means beginnings. It means origins. As God's people had just spent 400 years plus enslaved in Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped everything that moved. And they would have definitely influenced and confused God's people. And so God, through his servant Moses, by his Holy Spirit, breathes out his very word to his people. And he breathes out the very first sentences and words of scripture 
right? 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Israelites desperately needed to hear from God. They needed revelation. They needed revelation to teach them. They needed revelation to reprove them, correct them, and to train them for what was coming ahead, which is what God's people always need to hear, friends. We always need revelation from God. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, writes it down for them through the agency of a man. And so we today, friends, we still need to hear from God. And the beautiful thing is, that the very same words written to God's people back then are the same words given to us today. As we, like the Israelites, have been rescued from our bondage and slavery to sin, as we right now are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth, a new promised land, as we as God's people are experiencing our own exodus, waiting for the return of the Lord, we constantly need to hear from God. And we, like the Israelites, need to hear about our origins, our beginnings. We need to know our foundations. We need to understand that which upholds everything that we believe in and hope in right now. Right? We, just like the Israelites, are being influenced by all kinds of worldviews and philosophies and belief systems all around us. But we need to hear from the one true God. The one true beginning, the one true faith that grounds and undergirds everything that we believe. Because how we make sense of, of what is right right now is built upon the foundations of what has been revealed. All of it stands or falls on how we understand our beginnings. And so God's people need to hear from God. And the first thing we see him saying here we see him saying, in the beginning. Friends, there is an actual beginning to it all. In the beginning. In a world that is confused and speculating and grasping at all kinds of far-fetched theories, empty philosophies and ideologies. Friends, what we need to know right now we need to know right from the very voice of God himself is that there is an actual beginning to all of this. There is a real, tangible, sensible, rational, reasonable, divine beginning to all of this. We can't go about this world saying, well, I think it could be this, or, or maybe it could be that, or, or I'm just not quite sure. No, friends, in a world that so desperately needs foundations, what we need right now, what we need to know is that we have a beginning. And we can know the beginning. And we can actually know our beginnings because why? Because God tells us about our beginnings. No, friends, in the mercy and the grace and the love of God, he didn't just leave us in our darkness to keep us grasping and guessing. 
No, out of his love for his very people in the wilderness, out of his overflowing, benevolent, abundant grace and mercy, God deems to speak to his creation. He speaks into our darkness. And again, the first thing he he addresses is the beginning of it all. And what we see here is a God who is so intimately bonded and sovereign over every aspect of his creation. As every human who has ever existed ponders where we come from. What's all of this for? God powerfully says, Bereshith, in the beginning. God takes the first initiative. He sets the scene for the grandest story, the greatest epic, the holiest once upon a time ever told. And he's basically saying, this is how it starts out, people. You want answers? I've got the answers. You want the truth? I've got the truth. And God begins to answer the questions of our deepest longings, first by saying that it all had a beginning. It was all started. You are not here by mere accident. You are not here by mistake or chance. You have a beginning, and it's an intentional, divine beginning, and it is not plan B, it is not plan C or D, it is plan A. This glorious universe is not a result of a series of random accidents that happened all on their own. We didn't just pop out of some primordial ooze as if we already and always existed. You're not just a bunch of natural matter that is glued together by some mysterious natural cause due to billions and billions of years of hopeless chance. Now what God says in the opening word of his word is that there is a definite beginning for you. A definite beginning to us and to his universe. And it happened at a particular point of time and space and purpose. And that without a beginning, none of it makes sense. Friends, to have a revealed beginning is to have a revealed foundation. You know, as a, as a kid, <coughs> I remember wa- wondering about these things. Some of these biggest questions in life. Wondering where it all came from. Even though I was raised in the church, I still remember lying on the grass and, and looking up at the sky, looking up at the clouds, wondering how did this really begin? I remember looking at a, at a, at a dandelion as a kid and I was probably influenced more by Dr. Seuss than anything here, but I wondered, could our world be just like this little piece of fuzz on a dandelion? Belonging to a greater world that I can't see? Is life just one great big game where I play a minute role in a greater scheme of some other hidden realm? I remember truly wondering what all of this was for and where did it all come from? And so as I was raised in the church, I was also raised in the school system. And I remember also in in elementary and in middle school 
when teachers started talking about naturalism and evolution, where they really weren't giving us answers. There was no sure answers. A lot of it was theory. We can't know for sure. And I remember in those moments, a real sinking kind of a feeling in my gut that if I would allow myself to even consider these things, there was just emptiness to it all. If there was no in intentional, intelligent, divine beginning to it all, life was just empty and meaningless. That it truly was just about survival of the fittest. Now, although I was convinced of a creator God from childhood, I could imagine how believing in a godless universe would just, it would just drop the floor out from underneath you. That there would be nothing to stand on, nothing to really believe in. It was the same perspective I got to look into later in life, taking philosophy 101 in college, learning about Nietzsche and, and nihilism and the philosophy of mere naturalism, which ultimately results in nothingness and, and meaninglessness. That we're all just a bunch of molecules that transition from, from one object to another, from millennia to millennia. What's it all for? What's the point? No, friends, if you take away a sure, intentional beginning, the floor does fall out from under you and you will spend your entire life endlessly falling into purposelessness, nothingness. And then with that, when you take away the beginning, friends, you also take away the end. If all we are is just matter, then nothing really matters. When you take away the beginning from the end, the middle has no significance. There are no brackets to hold you in. There is no greater purpose or reason for existing at all. No, friends, the reason God starts with the beginning is because of the urgency of the end. Again, as the Israelites were in the wilderness, they were to follow Moses to the end. They were to follow Moses into the promised land. It was a forward-looking faith, and it was upheld by the beginnings that would ultimately get them there. And so as the Lord declares Bereshith, Genesis, as this is his very first word from the mouth of God to man, it is a loud shout. It is the loudest shout amidst a world of so much noise. It's the loudest shout that should lift up the most downcast eyes of despair. It's the loudest message that should ever open deaf ears. And it's the loudest voice because it is God. And it is him that gives us hope. It's him that gives us reason so that we can stand firm, not on this world, not on the wisdom of man, not on conjecture, but on revelation direct from God himself. Friends, we're living in a time where it's not so much about competing creation myths like the Israelites were facing. Stories from other religions and cultures are out there for sure. It's not so much about that anymore that, that's influencing our understanding of the beginning no more than anything. We're living in a time 
when what is called science, what is what was once just a set of theories is now being broadly accepted as fact. Friends, we're living in a time when truth is under attack. And there is, there is really a war going on over the beginning. Our children are being taught that they are just higher-ordered animals. That they have just mutated to the top of the food chain by billions of years of survival of the fittest. Higher education so saturates the sciences with Darwinian theory that any idea of intelligent design is scoffed at as backwoods ignorance. As science was once considered the handmaiden of theology, science has now become king. Science is now God. And it's leading our world into a godless, hopeless loop of despondency and utter meaninglessness. Where all that we have is right here. All that we have is right now. There's no purpose in the beginning. And there's definitely no hope in the end. I think that's why our world, and even really recently, throughout the pandemic has really grown so anxious and worried, so afraid, so reactive, so extreme. It's because the brackets of our beginnings are gone. There is no real divine beginning understanding in the world. And with that, there is no real end. And so all that I have right now is just what's in front of me. All I have is this experience. Therefore, when it's threatened, I'm going to lose it. Oh, friends, as the science, as the experts have touted so much fear, friends, we as Christians... We are those who have heard the truth. We know the truth. We have the book of truth. We know our beginning and we know our end. Therefore, we need not fear. We know that it's not all about right here, this temporary existence. No, we know that our beginnings point forward to an end, our end, which never ends. Friends, the world needs this hope. They need to know their beginnings. We have God's revelation to bring them hope so that they would trust in Him. We need to share that with the world. We need to tell them how it all started, friends, how it all began. We need to tell them that it's not about a bunch of rash, random processes firing off here and there without purpose. We need to teach our kids the truth. We need to tell our neighbors the truth. Friends, as one theologian said, the gospel doesn't begin with the cross. The gospel begins in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Without that, you have no foundation. Without that, you have no gospel. And so what the Jews needed to hear in the wilderness after they were just rescued from Egypt and its pantheon of false gods 
is that in the beginning, the same God that passed over their blood-soaked doorposts, the same God that cursed every one of Egypt's false gods blow for blow with the plagues, the same God that they watched lead them across the Red Sea in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, that one and only God is the one who created the entire universe and he is to be trusted. He is the one and the only God who could go before them in the face of their enemies to come. The only one who could ever fulfill his promises to the very end. There is a beginning to it all. And secondly, there is an actual God behind it all. In the beginning, God. As God speaks and says, Bereshith, in the beginning, he also says, Elohim, God. In the beginning, God. Again, these are his very first words. And it begins, it begins with me, he says. Friends, the Bible, at its very core, is not just a book about instructions for life. It's not just a book about how we are to live. No, in fact, it's not really primarily about us at all. What is the Bible primarily concerned about? It's concerned about God. And what God, by his spirit, through Moses, declares right at the outset, his revelation to his people, is that the Bible is about God. In the beginning, God. Friends, the Bible is the self-revelation of God. That he is before it all. That he is the author of it all. That he is the only God. Isaiah 45 says this, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Friends, the special revelation of God is not only a message about our beginnings, it's a message about the God of the beginnings. Friends, our God not only tells us the what, he tells us the why, and the why is him. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He says in the beginning, God, Bereshith, Elohim, to reveal that there was a specific time, but even more than that, that there was a specific person. He is God. This is the greatest salutation ever given. God introduces himself. He is the answer to our greatest wonders and longings. Friends, you can't go about this world, you can't go and explore its beauty, even as we see out these windows here today. You can't look at the billions of stars in the sky and the beauty of creation below, and you cannot look at all of that and help but wonder who began all of this. Psalm 19, 1 to 4, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork Day to day, pours out speech. Night to night, it reveals knowledge. God is declaring himself in what he has made. Ever since the dawn of time, people have been looking at what God has made, and they are arriving at conclusions. There must be a God. Because the glory of the universe proclaims it. Friend, friends, God's fingerprints are on everything. 
And the more advanced that we become and the more technology that we have to not only see beyond the solar system, but to see deep into the microscopic world, there is nowhere to escape him. His marks are upon everything. No, in fact, to study the universe and to come to some other conclusion is a direct objection to the very truth that it all points to. Paul wrote about this. Paul says in Romans 1, 19 to 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because why? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In what? In the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Friends, we are without excuse. Now, although we are without excuse, friends, and as much as the whole universe declares that there is a God, the stars are not enough. The mountains are not enough. The intricacies of intelligent design encoded in our DNA is not enough to truly know him. To truly know him in a personal, abiding, saving way. And that's exactly why in the introduction of God's book to man, he says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, me. Friends, general revelation is not enough to get you there. General revelation can only lead to an awareness of some kind of God. But you can't get to the true and living God by looking at a mountain, by looking at the stars, that is why God had to speak these special words. That's why you have that Bible. It's God's special revelation to you. Just this past week, an Angus Reid survey here in Canada revealed that belief in the God of the Bible is at an all-time low. In fact, the survey reveals that only 7% of Canadians consider themselves to be evangelical Christians. And that less than 18% of Canadians believe that the God of the Bible created the universe and humanity as we know it. Now we're going to be talking more about evolution's impact on the world's understanding of God in the weeks to come. But the point needs to be made right now that our world, by and large, right now, more than ever, are holding to all kinds of ideas about our beginnings. And the majority of those ideas do not involve the special revelation of the true and living God. This was similar to what the Jews were dealing with in their day. Although the theory of evolution wasn't really a thing back then, the world was believing all kinds of differing creation mythologies and stories. In fact, again, when you think about the Israelites living in Egypt for 400 plus years, they would have been exposed to a multitude of creation myths. One Egyptian creation myth of Hermopolis taught that eight gods sprung out of the primeval waters. Four of them came out as female snakes and four came out as male frogs. And as they converged, they created the sun. Another myth of Heliopolis speaks of a deity named Atom, 
interesting choice. A-T-U-M. This atom who created the space between the waters through the act of what I, I want to just safely describe as self-love, who then released, and, and it also says that he sneezed and, and spat out all kinds of other gods, who then gave birth to other gods, which became the gods of the air and water and fertility and chaos and war and many other gods. The creation myth of Memphis speaks of a god who was a master craftsman who could only use the materials of the universe in order to create. And then as the Israelites themselves would have witnessed the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt, they would have witnessed how every plague that God brought upon Egypt directly confronted ten false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Needless to say, in light of so many influences from just the Egyptians over hundreds of years, God's people were likely confused. They didn't, they weren't sure what to believe in. And so as you think about God starting his revelation here with himself, what we're seeing is him giving a direct confrontation with the competing myths of the day. He is not a God who created other gods. No, he is God alone. And he shares his glory with no other. He was not a god amongst many other gods. No, as he will reveal further in his word, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, right? He is not a god who needed anything to procreate with. No, he merely spoke it all from nothing, as we're going to study very soon. No, friends, what we see here in Genesis is a polemic from God. It's a head-on attack of God in the face of so many false understandings. Friends, the true God overall is not a God of many understandings. He alone is God. And as the Israelites were to come into the promised land, what was so crucial for them, as commanded by God himself was that they were to worship him alone, right? And have no other gods before him. As they were going to go into a land with polyistic or polytheistic false beliefs in Canaan, they were going to face the Baals, the Els, the Asherah, the Dagons, the, the, the Molochs, and many other false gods. And what they needed most was not to believe in all of these other gods, not to have a false understanding of God, but as God himself commanded his people. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Friends, as our world is so full of all kinds of alternative explanations of our origins, what the world needs to know now more than ever is just as it was for the Israelites back then, that there is one Lord there is one God, that there still is only one Lord. There still is one God. There is no room for any other gods. There is no room for any other explanations. Friends, as God opened his divine revelation of himself and the universe, he opened the door of the beginnings, the foundations, and the one standing behind the door is him. 
You cannot approach life or existence or origins without confronting God. He is the first. He is the last. Just as Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, God is God. And the real test is whether or not you believe in him. Commentator Derek Kidner says this, it is no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible because his name here, Elohim, dominates the whole chapter. It occurs some 35 times in all so that it catches the reader's eye again and again that it is about him. Right before the mountains were brought forth, Wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90 verse 2. Friends, this book is about him. Him at the beginning, him throughout, him at the end. And you only have two choices. Either you believe in him, the God of the Bible, and how he has so powerfully revealed himself, or you don't believe it and you reject it to your folly and shame and death. You have one choice that leads to salvation and security and assurance forever, and the other which leads to nothingness, which will ultimately lead you to eternal suffering and death. And the question is, is which one do you choose? Will you repent of every other explanation, of every other false understanding? Will you repent of your rejection of his truth and choose to believe in the one true God who loves you enough to reveal himself to you? Or will you stand in the place of pride and reject him? the one who has so powerfully and plainly revealed himself to you. This is what the Israelites faced, and this is what we face today. How do you respond? And thirdly, as the text goes on, as there is an actual beginning, and as there is an actual God, there is also an actual purpose to all of this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. As the many so-called gods of Egypt and gods of Canaan and even the gods of Mesopotamia and Babylon all came with their own version of creation, only one explanation stands above them all. And that is that God himself, the God of the Hebrews, the God alone created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. This is one monotheistic God in a plethora of polyistic falsehoods. One God and one God only with help from nothing or anyone. Or, and he created it all. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. It was all created by the power of his very word. He creates it all by merely speaking it all into existence. And what we're going to see in the coming verses and in the chapters ahead is that it all comes down to God said. And God said. God said and it was so. God made and it was made. 
God called and it was done. God said. God said. God said. That in just six days, as the text plainly and clearly says, friends, clear and plain enough for a child to understand. In just six days, there was morning, there was evening. Six of those, the God in the beginning creates everything. He creates the heavens and the earth. In fact, the phrase heaven and the earth is what's called a merism in literature, meaning that you take two contrasting parts of the whole for the purpose of explaining the whole. Right? It's like saying, from the head to my toes. Heaven and earth speaks of the totality of all of it. Everything that's up there and everything that's down here. And friends, we need to believe this. We need to believe this as it is so plainly and clearly revealed here. We have to remember that God's word is sufficient. He gave us everything that we need for life and godliness through the divine power of his word. If he says he created it all, he did, and that is enough. Even though many are going to try to pull it apart and insert all kinds of theories to try to mesh the biblical account with scientific theory, friends, we never approach God's word by trying to square it with man's limited concepts. We must always square man's limited concepts with what God has revealed. We square it with God's word. It's his word. It's the total truth. And it's the word that comes from him. And his word says, I created everything. Friends, did God create everything? Yes. Did God need any help? No. Does God need help from science and theories to make all of this seem plausible? No. No, friends, everything that you see and you can't see, he sees and he made. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. Again, we see in heaven and earth, the totality of it all, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's our purpose. Just this past Christmas Day, NASA finally launched its $10 billion James Webb Telescope, which is the largest space telescope ever built. And it has a mission to try to peer back into time, to try to scope all the way back to the earliest hints of starlight for the purpose of uncovering the history of the universe and the origins of life. Now, friends, as cool as some of these images are going to be and as incredibly insightful as they will be for science, as much as they try to peer into our beginnings through observation, the greatest thing that they will discover is that the more that they see, the more they are going to see of God's glory. Friends, as they may discover more insight into the earliest electrons and protons and neutrons and matter, What they will not be able to discover just through observation alone is who started it. 
They're not going to be able to understand why it's all here. Because, friends, these are not questions for science to solve. These are theological questions. Questions that can only be solved through God himself saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, friends, the fact that he created it all, the totality of what all ever we could explore, speaks of our purpose speaks of meaning. It speaks that it's all about him. It's all for him. It's all about what he's communicating from the very beginning. That you cannot ignore him. You must come to your conclusion. Do I believe or do I reject it? Friends, his message in this as well is always salvific. As we turn in the pages ahead in the coming weeks, we are going to be confronted with our own rebellion. We're going to be confronted with the sin of mankind. As God was setting up his cosmic temple into which he is to be worshipped, the plan even before the foundation of time, as Ephesians says, was that he would choose his people in the Savior, in the Creator. The one whom the rest of the world proclaims. Or the rest of the word proclaims. John 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Without our foundations of the beginning, we don't have a savior. He was there from the beginning and the plan was to save a rebellious people. So friends, there is an actual beginning to it all. There is an actual God behind it all. And there is an actual purpose for it all. And we respond by praising his holy name. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to sing right now. We're going to sing All Creatures of Our God and King. As we do that, our, our ushers are going to be passing out the elements of the Lord's Supper. And this hymn, this beautiful song, declares the majesty of our Creator. Some of the, uh, the words go, it goes as this. It says, All the redeemed washed by His blood Come and rejoice in his great love. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Christ has defeated every sin. Cast all your burdens now on him. Praise him. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. 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 Let's sing.